Welcome, and thanks for downloading the podcast. We want to get you to the sermon as quickly as possible, but we do want to let you know about our annual Advent campaign that has just launched this Sunday. Every year, we try to take some of the generosity that is engendered by this Christmas story and point it toward those who we can help. This year is no different. Our goal is to raise $50,000 on top of what we already do all year to help those in need. You can head to commons.church advent to read all the details about four particular projects that we are focusing on this year and to give if you are able. Have a Merry Christmas and as you can, extend the generosity of Christ wherever you go. Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We haven't had a chance to meet before. My name is Scott, and I also serve as part of our team of pastors here at Commons. And as Yelena said, you heard from her earlier, we are so glad that you're with us here this morning. It's uh, been a really good fall for our parish here in Inglewood. Lots of youthful energy and new faces joining community and continued growth in our engagement with our partners working here in Inglewood, which is something that we're excited about here at Advent especially. And then also we've been plotting some new first steps together, which is wonderful. And along with all of that, uh, we started our teaching year with an extended conversation on Jesus's most famous sermon, which was super fun. And last week, we actually wrapped up some teaching conversation around this idea of hospitality, looking at all of the ways that Jesus's life and teaching come to us and they surprise us, making room in our hearts and routines for those who are around us each and every day. And as always, we hope that you're able to follow along with our teaching, both keeping track in your journal when you happen to be here with us physically, but then also catching up on our YouTube feed or on our podcast when you happen to be away, along with keeping track of all the extra content that we try to give to you to keep you company during the week. We also release a lot of that on Facebook. So if you're not already connected to us, make sure you connect with us social media there. Now, with that said, as we mentioned last week, we don't just begin a new series today. This morning, we actually begin a new cycle of Christian time with the beginning of Advent. And the reality is that some of us are super familiar with this word, first of all, and then the practices and the traditions of keeping time. While for some of us who may have come to church today, this might be sort of a mystifying or intriguing idea for others. And how the church signals the significance of certain seasons with things like candles and artwork and special markers like this stole that I'm wearing up here today. See, here at Commons, we try to attend to some of these practices as a way of acknowledging that not all truth and illumination and hope are expressed in the words that you speak or the words that you hear on a Sunday morning. We try to make space for different color and routine as a way of calling all of our senses to attention, reminding ourselves, especially during Advent and during Lent in the spring, that we are, these are seasons when we practice anticipation, especially during those seasons. We try to remind ourselves that the great truths of the divine story are best repeated, and they're best celebrated and highlighted again and again. 
And so over the next few weeks, as we move toward Christmas, and we will light the Advent candles. We will invite you into our annual Advent campaign, as Yelena has already started to describe for you today. And we will approach the text wrapped in liturgical color. And we're going to look at a series of prayers that appear in Luke's account of Jesus' birth. And each of these prayers is actually known to the broader church by the Latin words that begin each prayer. So what's great about coming to church during Advent is you're going to walk away with some Latin. That's awesome, right? But seriously, each of these texts adds to the spiritual vocabulary that we have for what Eugene Peterson calls a language of listening and believing, a language of receptive and responsive participation as God speaks the life of Jesus into existence. And maybe you've never heard of that before. Or maybe you've never really spent that much time thinking about how for the church, time actually begins with Advent. This season of pause and quiet where we listen for the voices of those in ancient text and those coming from the harried and the violent and the lonely places of our world too. All of them longing for and calling for change with the hope that there might actually be a God with us or a God with all even. And we wait here. And whether these, familiars, or whether these themes are familiar for you or they're a welcome partner to your end of your routines or maybe they're completely unfamiliar and they're uncharted for you, the truth is that Advent practice marks the beginning of our faith. That place of waiting in us that longs and needs and cries out, searching for words to describe our ache and, oh yes, too, our fragile hope. I think we just lost our signal here. There we go. That's part of what it names, which is why we take up our ancient prayers for our own crazy times. And as we begin this year of sacred speaking and holy listening together, I'm going to invite you to take a moment of quiet and pray with me now. So let us pray. God, you are God of change long hoped for, God of unspoken need, God of all the heaviness carried here today. And to you, our hearts are open and our desires are known. And we ask that you would grant us a special grace today. Grace to trust that you approach us with kindness. And that your work in us continues. And that we are not alone where we stand today. And for the gifts of community, the gifts of worship, of words and song that remind us of your goodness, we are thankful for familiar faces, for welcome shared and offered, we are thankful. And we ask as we begin another cycle through sacred time that you would be our guide and our light and our path, infant God, Christ our hope long awaited, come and lead us now we pray. Amen. All right, so we have some work to do today, so we're going to jump right into our text, which has a bit of a story attached to it. We're actually working with the beginning of Luke's gospel today, right after Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told that she is carrying a child. And we're going to look more closely at that story next week. Today, we actually learn in the wake of her hearing that news, Mary picks up and she goes to visit a relative, a woman named Elizabeth, which, just a quick note, we're going to actually come back to Elizabeth as well later in this series because her story is super important. 
Elizabeth is also pregnant in this story. Things are happening, apparently. And she is carrying a child that will soon become John the Baptist, whose public ministry will precede the work of Jesus. Anyway, Mary goes to see her. And when Mary arrives, she comes into the house and she's saying her hellos. And as she does so, the child in Elizabeth's womb starts jumping and kicking, which having watched my wife carry three kids and her belly contort and distend with those alien stretches, this seems totally normal. But what's different in this story is that Elizabeth is actually filled with the Holy Spirit, the text says. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Elizabeth gets inspired. And she starts celebrating Mary. And she says, you are blessed. And so is the child that you will carry. And then Mary responds with this prayer referred to as the Magnificat. Which is a reference to the word magnify that Mary uses in most translations of the first line. And I want to read this whole text for us this morning, so bear with me. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, which says this, that Mary said, My soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has been mindful of the humble state of this servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear God from generation to generation, and God has performed mighty deeds with a powerful arm and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And God has filled the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. God has helped Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as God promised our ancestors. And then she finishes this song and prayer. And then the text says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, until about the time that Elizabeth's child would have been born, and then she returned home. Now, this is a notable section because Luke has Mary making all kinds of references to the Hebrew scripture, remembering some highlights from her people's history. And it's important too, as scholar Elizabeth Johnson notes, that this is the most that any woman gets to say in the New Testament. And that fact alone, along with the content of this prayer, means that we should pay special attention. And we begin by looking a little closer at the meeting that sparks this prayer, where Elizabeth, a woman old enough for her pregnancy to be unexpected and surprising for some, and Mary, a woman young enough for her pregnancy to be unexpected and scandalous, where these two women come together in this moment of solidarity, and quite as appropriately, they're both astonished when they see each other. And there is something so wonderful about how these women come together and they just can't believe what's happened for the other. They're so excited. And that excitement is at the center of why this is such an important Advent text. It's a reminder to us that in all of our seasons of waiting that life brings to us, maybe for the dream that we have to be realized or for our business to grow or for a breakthrough to come, that waiting isn't to be done alone how we really are at our best when we wait together. And what's clear when you look a little closer at this story is how Mary's arrival and presence spark in Elizabeth this awareness of her own story. 
how the changes in her life and the promise of change in her own body and in her own family, how her long-awaited hopes, these things are tied to Mary showing up and being there with her. And she blesses Mary's waiting too. She offers words that like some friend or mentor in your story probably would have sustained Mary in a difficult season to come as she watched her own child grow into his potential. Which in turn, Mary honors with this joyful outburst and prayer. And Luke notes that she stays with Elizabeth to the end of this pregnancy. This joint affirmation of a model for how in this season we are called to be open and observant to those around us. Reminding each other, listen, something's happening in you that's worth waiting for. Which makes a lot more sense. If we think of saying that to each other, it makes way more sense when we recognize Advent as a season that derives from this Latin term meaning simply to arrive. And historically, this came to represent the church's commemoration of the Christ child arriving, along with 40 days of preparation in getting ready for this feast. But what's interesting is also how that same Latin term is one of the roots for our English term, adventure. A word that originally referred to the unexpected and uncontrolled things that come to us in our life. The things that arrive without our planning or invitation. And all of this wordplay brings our Advent practice into focus, I think. I mean, have you considered how over these next few weeks you might be more observant of the people around you? Your friends, your colleagues, a partner, a child in your life? And how you might take a moment to cultivate a sense of astonishment at how they have changed in the last year. How maybe they've taken risks, or they've shown courage, or they've made big decisions, and how they are carrying new life that you can see in them. And how you might bless them simply by noticing this and telling them that you notice. A practice that, as you were to share it with each other, it's going to open you up to the things that are growing in you. The shifts that are happening in you, the stretching that you have done, the newness that you've stepped into. Things that we don't always have eyes to see and words to name in ourselves, right? Or maybe, maybe you know someone who's facing a different kind of advent. Maybe they're facing a significant challenge and adventure where some unexpected and uncontrollable thing has happened to them and where your Advent practice this year might be to just wait for illness to pass or for a relationship to resolve or for anxiety to calm. And you might think it insignificant to step closer to someone in a time of waiting, how you might stick with them through a time of change or stress or difficulty like Mary does with Elizabeth, just seeing someone through to the end of a thing, but it's not. There really are so many ways that like these two women, we can choose to do more than wait well, where this Advent we could actually wait together affirming the good that we carry and holding the promise of good yet to come. Now, Mary offers this prayer, and she says, Look, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, for God has seen, God has considered, God has been mindful of my humble state, she says. And the Greek term for humble here, it's based on other usage in other texts and other places in the Christian scriptures. It's perhaps better translated as lowly. And it's best understood as a reference to social and economic status. And here, Mary names one of the most provocative images of this theological idea we call incarnation. How, in fact, God's profound gift to the world has been offered to someone who is not of the appropriate status or place to receive it. How, in fact, God's attention is drawn to those who live in the world's most obscure places, to the parts of your story and mine that are off the path and off the map and sometimes off the rails. And the prayer continues in almost every line to offer callbacks to this long tradition of Hebrew scripture and prayer and lament. And it does so affirming that this attention to the lowly and to the disadvantaged, to those who have no resources, that God's attention has always been on those people. And that to some degree, any measure of authentic religious fervency and practice should follow that divine gaze as a roadmap for how to live in the world. And because of this, we should not be surprised to learn that during British colonial rule in India, the Magnificat was banned from being sung in churches. In the 1980s, the Guatemalan government banned the public reciting of this prayer because of how Mary's words about God's attention to the poor, this provoked and empowered the impoverished masses. Or how in the 1970s and 80s, the oppressive military regime in Argentina made it illegal for Mary's song to be displayed publicly because of how this one group, the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, used it in their posters as they called for the justice for their children who had disappeared as they protested the government's violence, corruption, and injustice. And these historical examples parallel the work of contemporary artists like Ben Wildflower, who has taken up these words and texts and created provocative images like this one, where Mary stands with an identity rooted in protest and prophetic confrontation, and her youth and her diminutive form become an emblem for all those with fragile bodies and uncertain futures caught up in a cause, a divine cause, it turns out. And we, we really can't do good work with this text if we don't acknowledge its political implications. And how it doesn't leave any of us, especially those with powers of economic security and agency and gender preference and racial inequality and disproportionate opportunity, people who look a lot like me, it doesn't, doesn't leave any of us untouched with its evaluation. And not just because it names what's wrong with the world, because that isn't so hard, is it? I mean, your social media and your conversations with friends and this civic and provincial moment that we're in have us in tune with what's happening, right? We don't need somebody to do this for us. No, actually, the power of this text is the fact that it invites us first to see the divine story anchored in Jesus and to see that story itself as activism and to acknowledge that God's agenda has always been to account for the humble and the lowly and how the divine continues this even in the family that God chooses to occupy as God comes to us. But then too, this text's power lies in the fact that it's offered as prayerful worship. 
as a measuring stick for the devotion of all those who celebrate this child's birth. Where, as part of our Advent practice, we recognize that we actually pray, like Mary, not with words, but when we live as though God's intentions for the lowly are what's best for the world. And how do we do this? Well, I think the last few lines of this prayer help us in a couple ways. First, they name what God has done in the history of the Jewish people, keeping and protecting them. And they name a hope for what God's going to do in the future. And we'll come to those lines here in a second before we're done. But first, I, I want to point out how in verses 49 and 50, Mary recognizes the divine attributes that are the causes of God's actions and the hopes that people have. She names them as God's holiness and God's mercy. And for sure, both holiness and mercy are theological buzzwords. Many of us with previous religious experience might have a relationship with these words. We might even have an aversion to them. And that's okay. But I, I want to point out what's significant about these descriptions of God. How they point to, in this story, a God that doesn't stay isolated. See, when you look at the description of mercy extended to those that fear and honor the divine, it's easy to hear that as a divine restriction when in fact, it's the opposite. It's easy to miss that Mary's song hinges on the pronoun shift from a first person singular where she's talking about herself to the third person plural talking about all those people out there. Where Mary starts to speak more than what God has done for her. And how the scope of redemption expands beyond the isolated Jewish family to include all who honor God and do what is right. And when Mary sings that these things that God's doing in her life will echo in future generations, that God has done these things for the sake of God's holy name, it's easy to hear that as a reflection of God's divine self-centeredness, when in fact, it's the opposite. See, a Jewish understanding of God being holy was rooted in the imagination that we see in Isaiah 57, where the prophet describes God as above and beyond and eternal. The prophet describes that God as saying these words, I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. There's that lowly term. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the spirit of the contrite. And this is a picture that shapes how I think we hear Mary's prayer, where she describes the divine as above and beyond, working in things as large as time and generations to restore and renew, and yet present and with us in the smallest of ordinary things with us in the low and the broken parts of our stories. And that picture of what makes God holy? Well, this is what Nadia Boltz Weber describes as our encounters with God through happenstance, where something jars us into ourselves and out of ourselves at the same time. And I love her language of how holiness happens in those moments when we are blissfully free from our own ego and yet totally connected to ourself and something else. Which is a picture of how you can encounter God in this season of waiting. In those blissful moments when you hold a friend 
or you hold an infant and you are just present in that moment. You're not seeking anything from it. Maybe when you willingly share your time and your meals with acquaintances or with family or with strangers even. But then also those blissful moments when you're free of yourself and you take up the challenge of living into the social implications of this prayer. Maybe where you'll research the needs of populations in our cities, or in our city actually, the people who are most directly impacted by the cuts and rollbacks that we're experiencing. Giving your time maybe to help a host of nonprofits in this city that are doing advocacy this Christmas, or even joining in our community's Advent campaign as one option, all the while, all these things, we embody to the world and to those around us the image of the holy and the merciful God that Mary speaks of. A God who would not stay isolated. Now, Mary prays out the rest of this story in a litany of reversals. How God scatters the proud and brings down rulers and lifts up the humble and fills the hungry and sends the rich away seeking, helping and remembering and coming through on long-held promises. And I think if we're going to honor this text as part of our Advent journey this year, we do right to consider taking up reversal as spiritual practice. And here's what I mean in part. I think we could start by picking up Dorothy Sole's statement as a guiding principle when she says, I believe in a God who created the world not ready-made, but who desires counter-arguments of the living and the alteration of every condition through our work and through our politics. There's a quote. There's a couple ways that Dorothy's statement help us live into Mary's prayer, I think. First, in its assertion that there are so many ways in the world, in fact, there's so many things in all creation that require our active work to reverse its destructive tendencies, and how when we do that work, we actually partner with the divine. And secondly, Dorothy's statement helps us in its call for the alteration of every condition where I think it actually highlights a helpful distinction that has to be made for some of us, the difference between biblical hope and optimism. See, it's so important to remember how prophets, the, the people in history uh, in our own moment, the people who in our own moment who are making a difference, people like Mary in this prayer, for instance, or like the great prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew scriptures, but then also people in history like Martin Luther King Jr., or a thousand Me Too voices, or the mental health advocates, or the education advocates in our own culture. Really, just think of anyone or everyone that you read who stirs you to action. How these voices, how these prophets, they don't work with optimism, which tends to only settle for a slightly better version of the status quo that benefits them. No, they stir up a biblical hope that requires envisioning a common good for God's people. See, when Mary anticipates that God will bring down rulers as God has done in Israel's past, and that God's going to leave the wealthy empty and fill the hungry, she is holding on to biblical hope that sees no other way into God's future than for God's people to seek the common good for all. 
And she's showing how to merely pray these words with her today as optimistic wishes and not live to make them be. Well, that implies that we aren't really praying with the lowly or the hungry or the humble. And maybe if I pray optimistically, I'm just praying and benefiting from a status quo that isn't helping anyone. So, living reversal as spiritual practice certainly has this social and political side, but I think there's more. Like, what if over the next few weeks you were to practice reversal by choosing to construct your spiritual life and your faith, not by tearing other people's ideas down or deconstructing others' actions, but with courageous acts of affirmation and world building, where you would choose to start building what the world needs instead of attacking what you think it doesn't? What if you were to start practicing reversal by paying attention to that part of your life that you know is a source of pain and distraction? It might be some unresolved grief or some unacknowledged vice or some anxiety that you know wasn't there 12 months ago, five years ago, whatever. Where instead of ignoring that thing and looking away, you reverse your attention toward the thing and toward the advent of help and health and wholeness that are possible. And maybe these things are things that our community could offer you in a time and space like this. Or what if we were to practice reversal by being honest about a wound that we've caused? A relationship we've neglected, an encouragement that we have left unsaid, or maybe we've been just so busy guarding ourselves or protecting ourselves and how these barriers have kept us from seeing the link between our inaction and the things that could be hurting someone. Each of these and many more are a way that we might take up Advent spiritual practice that Mary calls us to with her baby bump and her fist in the air, this, this call to live in such a way that people's hopes would actually be justified. And a call to live as though any and all darkness that presses in on us and those around us, that yes, even those things can be reversed. And I mean, I've said it already, I, I, we can't neutralize the social and political implications of these verses we've read. Where the mother of God herself lifts her voice and celebrates how the divine has come near to her, marginalized, unheralded, and poor, and then in the same breath, she prays hopefully that just as divine purpose was growing as an embryo in her belly, so too she prays that God's purpose for creation would be birthed in the weak being lifted up and the powerful disposed. And liberation theologians and political dissidents show us that these words indeed emerge from Mary's womb to comfort broken hearts everywhere. And listen, I know that so many of you are already doing this work in your service and in your expertise, in your love for the marginalized people on your street and on your neighborhood, the people in our city who are hurting more today than they were last week. And then I know there are some of us here today that are sensing an invitation to join Mary in this cause, which is great. But so too is this chance we have to go right into the heart of the dark of this season 
and to muster our courage and to steady our gaze and to steady the grip we have on each other's hands and then open our ears and listen for the longing that rises from the world around us with all of its selfishness and its violence and its abuses and for you to listen for the aching in your own heart that comes to the surface when you finally have a moment to yourself, a moment of quiet. You sit there and you sense this aching for things to change, this aching for real hope, aching that if we sit there long enough and well enough this Advent, yes, I think you'll hear Mary's voice come faintly to it, singing of a reversal yet to come. Let's pray. Loving God, we ask only that you would hold us now. As you hold all things, as you hold all the issues of our world, you hold its injustice and its bigotry, you hold those who wield power, you hold those who are calloused, those who are indifferent. You hold all of our corporate greed. And you hold to these things in us that are burning us up inside, the things we've brought with us. And we ask that you would give us hope to trust that you indeed hold it all. And even as your own mother held her own belly and hoped that your work was stronger than her ability to protect you, even as she hoped that your ancient promise to make things new might finally be realized, so too today we hold our lives and our dreams and the things that we long hoped would come to be true of us. And we ask, would you give us grace to wait together well? and in our waiting to take up the work of making your holy and your merciful presence a tangible force in the world, a force that really is always coming to us in the dark. This is our hope, infant Christ. We wait for you. Amen.